0: FDF Awards, one of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this passionate about food and drink podcast from the Food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft, I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF. And I'm joined today by my boss and friend, Ian Wright. Hello, Ian, how are you? Hello, Tim. I'm fine, thank you. This is the first time that we've chatted on the podcast since uh, the Christmas break. And I know that when we last spoke, we were full of anticipation, uh, positive and negative, I think, for what the Christmas break might bring at that stage. We were still uh, awaiting news of any kind of uh, free trade agreement with the EU, uh, and we were anxious about what the consequences of that might be, and indeed what the consequences of a deal might be. Uh, and of course, that is what we got, uh, an early Christmas present on New Year's on uh, Christmas Eve. So, um, it would be good to know how that period went really for FDF. Um, How do you think as you look back on it now, uh, that kind of unfolded?
1: Well, I think if it was an early Christmas present, it was slightly of the sort that you have to take back to the shop to change the size. Um, Because it was, it's a deal that is much, much better than what might have happened if we had had no deal. Uh, And there's no doubt that the absence of tariffs is a huge, huge uh, win for everybody in this country uh, and I think for everybody in the EU. But the detail in the deal is extremely important and the consequence of the deal coming so very late, I mean, right at the end of the year, in the middle of the Christmas holidays uh, where it was almost impossible for those who were enforcing the deal or those who were subject to its provisions to be able to understand those provisions before uh, they started either to enforce it or act under its uh, auspices was so huge It's such a big concern that that it it rather uh, takes the shine off the fact that there was a deal. And so you asked how the FDF has performed. I'm incredibly proud of our work over the last two or three weeks. On the day that the deal was announced on Christmas Eve, we were able to get uh, a very, very quick note out to members. Within uh, 24, 48 hours, in fact, I think on Boxing Day or on whatever the Monday was, we were able to get a note to all our members which analysed the deal and uh, followed that up with some very detailed analysis. Uh, On the Tuesday, so just what, four days, four working days after the deal had been agreed, We held a day-long series of briefings with MPs, peers and others to ensure that those who were to scrutinise pause for laughter the deal in the um, House of Commons or House of Lords uh, in their debates on uh, just two days before the the new year. Uh, We got them to uh, briefed and we had, I think, over 40 MPs, the chairs of umpteen select committees, all And every MP and key peer got a briefing uh, on paper or via email. And since then, we've continued to provide members with updates and information. Um, I've given evidence uh, this morning to the Brexit EU Exit Select Committee. I think we've had three meetings. More importantly, we've had three meetings of our EU Exit Committee since the deal was signed. I mean, we have we have really provided members and external stakeholders with the most enormous amount of information and analysis and we are as we speak advising members on an hourly basis of how best to navigate the provisions as they relate to Northern Ireland and to the EU
0: it was notable wasn't it that the the deal itself even though there was so little time to scrutinize it passed through parliament very quickly and actually with very little opposition the abled European research group of Conservative MPs who had been such a thorn in the side of both this and the previous administration uh, fell into line and supported the deal. Um, The Labour Party took a a pro-deal position and and it's kind of extraordinary when you think back over the last 18 months the the degree of political angst and fervour that has surrounded this issue. Do you sense now that that there is a a strong sense of of fatigue and that people were really just very pleased to see any kind of deal concluded and and were keen to move on? Well,
1: I think we are in a sort of uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dreamcoat position. Any deal will do. And I think that is entirely understandable, not just because, frankly, we're all completely fed up with the Brexit debate, even those like me and I think you Tim who are passionate would have been passionate remainers and still feel that the decision to leave the EU is an act of irrational self-harm to the UK. And we'll probably end up breaking up the UK. I think that's pretty clear now. I think we're all completely fed up with it and we just wish it would go away. Um and unfortunately that fed up feeling comes in the middle of a uh, of the global pandemic and in the way it's been uh, it's dealt its hand to the united kingdom where we're all utterly knackered and many people are utterly terrified by the current covid crisis so these two conditions um, or circumstances contrive together to and combine together to provide a situation where frankly nobody's got the headspace to worry about the Brexit deal um, and that's bad for the economic condition of the country uh, but entirely understandable and I have to say it's how I feel so I can't really complain if anybody else feels any differently um, but the deal itself does bear a lot of scrutiny and I think as we delve into it more we find, uh, we find things that are very difficult for our industry and indeed many others to accommodate in existing business arrangements And I guess my long-term prognosis would be that while there will be a number of fixes and renegotiations and interpretations and grace periods and all sorts of ways of uh, thinking about getting round particular provisions, particularly in the short term, to ensure food supply continues to uh, the UK, to ensure that UK exporters... Mostly, and big firms can continue to move their product around and in particular the, the Northern Ireland shopper and consumer doesn't get disadvantaged by the technical nature of its arrangements within the customs union but in the end this is going to require the most fundamental re, reimagining of most businesses supply chains that we've seen in the last 50 years and that will bring with it cost and disruption and some opportunity, but also some some long term erosion of the UK food manufacturing base. And that's not a remain a scare story. It's already happening. We're already seeing that, for example, there is basically no real fix that can get Uh, Scottish Longestine into the EU without enormous delay because the paperwork that requires to be completed simply cannot given the nature of the journey from the west coast of Scotland to uh, wherever it is in the EU in the time available before those products cease to be edible.
0: So we spent most of the last few years Saying that even in the event of a deal, there would be disruption at the border because of the whole range of new non-tariff barriers. The non-tariff barriers that the Prime Minister famously said weren't there. But we have been pretty consistent, I think, in saying that we expected the new year of 2021 to be marked by disruption at the borders and real problems caused by those new checks and formalities that you've referred to. You know, as we sit here on the 13th of January, trade seems to be flowing. The supermarkets seem to be well stocked. We don't hear stories of shortage or, uh, and, uh, and to the extent that we've heard stories of disruption, they seem to have been relatively localised or uh, in specific subsectors like Scottish seafood that you've mentioned. Ha- have we, is this the moment when we need to say that we were wrong about disruption in the new year?
1: No, absolutely not. Uh, we were right, and we're going to get righter, if that's a word in the lexicon of uh, uh, that either of us use. Um, it, it, there is disruption. About one in four, uh, as I understand it, about one in four lorries are being either turned back or have to have their paperwork revised when they get to France. Um, and more important, perhaps, are the, is the story of the... Uh, loads and lorries which aren't going anywhere. So most uh, uh, on the short straights from Calais to Dover, it's normally about 10, 11,000 lorries a day. It's under 2000 at the moment. So those who can go are largely those who have worked out, and this isn't just food and drink. Those who can go are largely those who worked out that they they've got the least onerous paperwork or bureaucracy to complete. And those who aren't going, are those who can't yet make head or tail of how to do the paperwork and ensure their products stay of merchantable quality. And I think that is the disruption to which we uh, made reference. And I don't expect that to be uh, improved anytime soon. I think volumes will increase as we head towards uh, the end of January. But I think as volumes increase, so will disruption, so will the number of lorries turned round. And I think businesses are, I go back to what I said earlier, businesses are going to have to reimagine their supply chains if they are to uh, find a way of delivering their products in the way that they would hope. Coming into the UK is a lot easier because the UK authorities are just basically going, go on you go. Um, uh, They're taking the view that it was... Uh, good enough on the 31st of December before 11 o'clock 2300 hours so it's good enough now but that will change in April uh, or it may change in April it may be that the UK government um, loses its resolve to start making major checks and we'll see how that develops but I don't think we were wrong to cause call that there would be disruption and I think The truth is there is already disruption, there is already discontinuity of supply and it will only get worse before it gets better.
0: So the other big story, of course, over the Christmas break was a very depressing acceleration in the Covid pandemic. And you and I both live in the Midlands and the the dizzying speed with with which we went into tears, moved up tears, had Christmas offered and then cancelled. And then went into a national lockdown, I think, has has left us all slightly bewildered. Um, and and of course, there was a bit of a sense in the autumn before things started to get worse that, that this was all well managed and under control in our sector. Food and drink manufacturing, of course, part of critical national infrastructure has been working throughout the pandemic. What's your sense now as to how food and drink manufacturing is doing in the face of these very high... Uh, rates of prevalence uh, and of hospitalisation?
1: Well, I think, first of all, there is no doubt that this is a very concerning situation. And you cannot uh, but accept that the uh, infection rates from the new variant and the consequent uh, hospitalisation and death and serious long-term conditions for those who survive are most are beyond words in terms of the level of concern one should express about them and is and must be appropriately dealt with so everything I'm going to say next is in that context I I'm not I'm totally uh I I cannot imagine what kind of nitwit believes that there is no problem with covid Uh, I think it's it's irresponsible I agree with um Cressida Dick actually, not my normal uh, position in relation to her views necessarily, but uh, it is absurd and irresponsible for people to suggest that there isn't a grave national crisis. It's either absurd or ir- and irresponsible or these those people are in some way poorly, if I can put it that way, most kindly. Um, but that doesn't mean I agree with the way the government is handling the situation and it doesn't mean that I think there aren't serious challenges for the food and drink industry to uh, face and let me start with those Um, first of all absence rates are climbing as a consequence both of the new variant but more likely actually as a consequence of um, the tweaks that uh, those in charge have made to the practice of track and trace so track and trace the track and trace net is being cast more widely to those if you've had a contact with somebody who has tested positive they're being much more rigorous about uh, and and in some ways i think more expansive about uh, tracking down everybody who has been within a particular uh, distance of those concerned and that is hitting the industry badly um and it is particularly causing difficulties where we've cohorted in factories so if there are six people or eight people in a cohort the chances are, if one person tests positive, everybody else gets uh, dinged, even if they aren't within two metres of that person for more than 15 minutes. Now, that may well be the right thing to do, but it would have been sensible for them, uh, for the authorities to make that clear to civil servants and ministers who are trying to ensure continuity of food supply. Because the consequence of some of this is that absence rates are over 20% in some uh, facilities, and as they head towards 30 you have to begin to think about closing down particular product lines or indeed in some cases whole factories uh, the reason that, that 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 doesn't necessarily mean in fact it certainly mean does not mean that uh the country will run out of food but that isn't really the point anymore um and at the same time as this is going on uh, at the at further up the supply chain, uh, retailers are seeing enormous amounts of pressure on store staff, but in a way, more importantly, on distribution center staff. And if DCs, the, the places where um retailers bring their food together and then distribute to stores, if DCs start to go down because they can't operate with the number of staff they have, then we have a really severe problem, and it's this if if customers shoppers going into stores see empty shelves and see their own favorite products either in very short supply or simply not there or if stores start to be if there's a glitch in store supply because a particular dc goes down and the supermarket concern has to reallocate uh, material from or product from other dcs to cover and there's a period of a uh, period when the, when the store is out of stock of uh, large numbers of items. The immediate effect in today's society is that somebody tweets it, somebody Instagrams it, somebody puts a photograph of the empty store up, and within minutes, that is a national crisis. And what you get is what you got in the first week of the pandemic back in March of last year, where people start to uh, they see they get the news that one store is out of stock of their favorite products and it can very very quickly become uh, that all stores are out of out of stock and as a consequence you get panic buying across all supermarkets around the country and i know that defra and those responsible are very 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 seized of this concern but that is to some degree an inadvertent result of the stronger application of track and trace.
0: That's all very disturbing stuff. Um, now we had two firsts over the Christmas holidays. Uh, one was that in a, an article in the Sunday Times two separate FDF experts were were both quoted and I think in my uh, over 30 years uh, I've certainly never achieved that uh, for anybody else and I'm not sure whether Ian whether you've ever seen that before the second one, which was slightly less uh, positive, was that uh, the government published a response to a consultation on a bank holiday. Uh, and that was their response to a consultation on obesity and measures to restrict retail promotions and uh, retail promotions of high fat, salt, sugar foods. Um, there, does, there does seem to be an issue that at the same time as our sector is under extraordinary pressure, for all the reasons we've already talked about it, it doesn't seem possible for us to persuade the government to sort of back off the business as usual agenda how frustrating is is that and and do you see any likelihood that we might get with argument?
1: well i think uh, i think it is extremely frustrating and I I understand in some ways the government's wish to try and continue with some level of business as usual in order to reassure people that that the wheels of of state have not come off the vehicle. Uh, But I think we're a bit past that now.
0: Interesting that this original consultation actually took place in 2019. At the time, we of course made a very detailed response to it. And uh, we raised, there were two points that we particularly highlighted. One was that the the government's own impact assessment massively underplayed the impact, financial impact to our industry. And the second was that their government's impact assessment acknowledged that restricting promotions in this way would only on average reduce calorie consumption by 15 calories a day. Now the government has revisited its impact assessment with this new publication and magically the 15 calorie a day number has increased to 70, but the impact uh, on the industry they have also acknowledged that they massively underplayed, although they haven't quite come all the way in, in acknowledging our figures, but they are now talking about a billion pound impact. And I think it massively undermines credibility of these kind of things where where the government is just seen to move the goalposts. There has been no move on the part of the government to change any of the substance of the proposals We've argued all along that it was ridiculous for them to, to have at the heart of their policy uh, reformulation, changing the recipes of our familiar products to remove fat, salt and sugar, and at the same time adopting a policy which would prevent reformulated products from being brought to the attention of consumers and shoppers. And they have done nothing to address that issue. And, you know, I certainly share your frustration, uh, not least given the, the broader context, but even on the individual merits or otherwise of this policy. It really is incredibly frustrating to see bad policy of this kind brought forward.
1: Yeah, and I think it, 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 it actually demeans the efforts of all those in the public health uh, sector uh, in, their, um, in their attempts to do the right thing because this is the wrong thing to do to correct a problem that is undoubtedly a serious one and seri- requires a serious solution, and this is a frivolous uh, knee-jerk solution um, by p- pushed by activists rather than experts, it seems to me. But, I mean, I think the trouble with that is that it will provoke um, what might be described as a furious response from um, our members, and... We will end up end up in a standoff that may last several years, no particular person ever gets thinner. And I think that's that's much to be concerned about. I also think that, you know, in the last, even since the consultation was published, the situation, the economic situation in this country has worsened. I mean, we are in the middle of an unfolding economic catastrophe, uh, we're going to see four, five, six, seven million people unemployed as a consequence of this, uh, the various economic privations that have been forced on us by the pandemic. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the recovery will be U-shaped now. Yeah, I notice even my friend Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, is talking about double dip recession we are headed for really, really, really perilous economic times. And to start monkeying about with the way in which uh, food is sold, uh, particularly to the poorest amongst our uh, community, is just utterly economically illiterate. And I think, you know, I think the government, amidst many other distractions, would be well advised to simply put their foot on the ball and say we'll just give this we'll take to mix my metaphors we'll take five bars rest and we'll just have a think about whether there's a way of proceeding with radical action on obesity which is undoubtedly required but which takes as many people as possible with us rather than ends up in probably in legal challenges in a lot of very, very polarized debate, which is not helpful.
0: Put their foot on the ball, take a five bar rest, make sure they don't fall between two stools and avoid changing horses in midstream.
1: Indeed, and, and it, you know it particularly avoid cliches in this uh, in this very, very troubled debate. But I do think I think it would be much more sensible for them to have a stop and think. Um, and i appreciate that's very difficult in the current context and I, I i you know i totally understand the wish to act but this is this is going to cause economic harm uh, as so many of their policies are doing and it's going to cause great damage to our food system and there won't be a dividend in terms of any single person getting thinner
0: Right, uh, we must bring our conversation to a close shortly. So I'm just going to see if we can find something positive to end on. Uh, I know that you like to look forward and you like, you're always planning for the next thing. Uh, what's the one thing about a post COVID, post Brexit world uh, for FDF that you're most excited about?
1: I think the opportunity for the industry to revert to some important social fabric issues uh, that have been neglected over the last four years because of Brexit, and it will be by the end of this 18 months because of Covid. It will be that those would be uh, what we've just been talking about, actually, in a slightly wider context, the role of food and drink in our national life and in ensuring that people, uh, that all of our people have the right levels of nutrition and access to the widest possible choice of food. Because to me, you can't have democracy without choice. And choice and the widest possible choice of food is at the heart of the success of our economy and of our democracy. I actually think it's a democratic right to have uh, a profusion of choice in food. I also think that, and I think that's a debate we should be in, which takes the obesity debate into other places. I also think that the whole issue of of our approach to the environment and an activist approach to a carbon uh, net zero target, which I would like to see us adopt. Um, I know others have a target of 2050 personally, and it won't be down to me. I would like to see a more ambitious target than that. And I would like to see us discussing how we can contribute to the economy, both through to the green economy through carbon reduction, but also to the employment economy, to the skills economy by improving the skills of our people, uh, to the modernization of the economy through automation, and actually in all the communities we serve, to the uh, basic levels of skills and, and education of the people who live in those places. We have to remember a, 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 a almost uh, a manufacturing plant or a production plant in just about every constituency in the country, I would like to see us contributing to the numeracy and literacy of kids in disadvantaged areas and indeed of adults in disadvantaged areas uh, very much over the next two or three years, because that will be the base level of skill that people will require to come into our industry. And I think we can do all of that together once we're through the COVID uh crisis and once we're seeing some of the resolution of some of the brexit issues
0: fantastic thank you very much ian thanks for your time today uh, our next thank podcast you. will be one of our regular uh, update webinar recordings and then in about two weeks time uh, we'll be back again with another chat Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Join us for the FDF Awards online February 3rd, 2021. Visit our website, fdf.org.uk for full details.